Good morning. Our scripture reading for this morning is Hebrews chapter 2, verse 1 through 4. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. And this is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, as we, as we um, hear your word this morning, as we read it and as we think about it and apply it, Lord, give us the grace to see it, to understand it, uh, to love it, and to walk faithfully. Father, for your glory and our good. In Jesus' name, amen. Does truth really matter? Truth doesn't seem to count for much at all these days. Truth doesn't matter much when it comes to COVID vaccines. Truth doesn't seem to matter much when it comes to elections. Truth doesn't seem to matter much when it comes to gender. Truth doesn't really count for much these days. Truth doesn't matter much when my spouse, or matter much with my spouse, when they just, quote, made me feel this way. Truth doesn't matter much with my kids when at least they're occupied for the moment, even though it's by the television. Truth doesn't matter much so long as I get my paycheck. Truth doesn't seem to matter much so long as I leave this building feeling happy about Jesus. Or truth doesn't seem to matter much so long as my false accusations fall on sympathetic ears. Truth doesn't seem to matter much. It doesn't count for much these days. Truth, I think, has gone out of style What really seems to matter today is feeling good or feeling at ease, feeling cared for or feeling whatever. This is a grave danger. We judge the morality of others not on the truth but on our feels. We judge a church not on the truth but on our feels. We judge what discipline necessary for our kids not on the truth, but on our feels. We judge where to work, not on the truth, but on our feels. We judge what to watch on TV, not by the truth, but on our feels. Heck, we judge a sermon, not by the truth, contained therein, but on our feels. Feeling good today gets the highest review ratings. The truth has gone out of style. If you don't believe me, who gets the most attention in your life, whether from you or from those around you? It's usually the person feeling the worst, whether that feeling is based on the truth or not. You know, today it pays to be the person feeling the worst because the person feeling the worst has the most power because of things like sinful empathy. If you don't believe me, notice what gets talked about the most. 
the tone of voice, not the truth of that voice. We say things like that was harsh or ungracious or that was unkind with no Bible verses anywhere to be found in sight. Did it have to be said that way? How about was what was said truthful? How about is what was said accurate? Truth has gone out of style. Again, if you don't believe me, now we have states that just voted to allow abortions up to birth. And a state that voted to not protect children from botched abortions after they're born. If you don't believe me, some of you are still upset about my tone comment that you're about the reality of abortions. Because truth has gone out of style. Just like the readers of first century Hebrews, this is not some problem, though, that's outside of here alone. But it's a problem in the house of God. It's a problem in some of our own households. And it's a problem in some of our own minds. The danger is real. I'm afraid that for many of us, and for myself included at times, that truth matters little to us. But this is precisely what the book of Hebrews is saying here at the beginning. That truth really does matter. It doesn't matter as just some set of writings that set off to the side that we kind of refer to sometimes. But truth matters in the here and the now. Truth matters in your mind. Truth matters when it comes to your emotions. Truth matters when it comes to your career, your job, your parenting. Truth matters in all of it. Namely, the truth about Jesus and all truth from Jesus. All he is and all he says is better. That's been the message since the beginning of Hebrews thus far. How is it better? You and I, as we've, we've walked through Hebrews thus far, and if, you've, if you're here for the first, I want to encourage you to go um, on our podcast and listen to the first few sermons But what you find in this beginning part of Hebrews is this point, that you cannot find justification for your sin anywhere else other than Jesus. You cannot find a sense of rightness before God anywhere other than through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ and His righteous life. You cannot find that. And yet we all are looking for that. This search to feel right. This search to to have purpose. to, To have eternal comfort from God. What we call this justification. This feeling of sense of rightness. And ultimately the legal status of just as if we've never sinned before God. Let me be frank with you. Some of us in here think that we are Christians, but we spend all of our time trying to feel justified by anything other than Jesus. Let me encourage you, just right from the beginning, the first thing you need to do is humble yourself 
and realize the hopelessness of that pursuit. And then second, as you humble yourself to place your hope in Christ's work. And it doesn't, it doesn't, that you may not consider yourself a Christian. That truth is for you. You might have considered yourself a Christian for the past 30 years. But if you've been chasing your justification through something other than Jesus Christ, then that thought, that truth applies just as much to you. For everyone in here, how important is truth in your life? How often do you take your mind, your emotions back to the truth? Because see, the first thing I want you to see is that drifting from the truth is like gravity, always pulling, unrelenting. Drifting from the truth is, is like gravity. You just you can't do anything about it. It's always there. You can fight against it. You're, it's always there. It's, it's not going to change. Drifting from the truth is, is like this. Hebrews 2, chapter 1. He says, therefore, we must pay close, much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. Listen, if you don't hear anything else that I say today, there's these next few moments that you really have got to, really need to hear. The chance of you and I drifting away spiritually is huge. Drifting from truth can be counted on just as surely as you can count on an object falling to the ground when dropped from any height. Gravity never stops. The pull away from Christ never stops. The pull away from truth and from faith in the truth never stops. In order for that object you drop from any height to not fall, there must be an equal or greater force than the gravity pushing it in the opposite direction. Just basic physics. The same thing is true spiritually. What I don't think we understand is that the gravitational pull away from faith in Christ and the truth is greater than you realize. Remember the context of Hebrews. He's not talking to the unbelieving world outside the church. He's not saying, hey, you, just in case, make sure you remember these things so that you don't drift away. No, he's talking to, to people who claim to be Christians and warning them to not fall away. And here's the big implication. People don't understand what is at stake and what the big deal is. I don't think we understand. He's writing to Christians, and he's using this strong language. Pay much closer attention, lest we drift away from it. I'm convinced that, that we as a church in general do not understand how big of a deal this is either. Let me give you some evidence for why I don't think we realize how big of a deal this is. Evidence one, the amount of time we give to sports over knowing God. Could be yourself and what you watch. It could be what you take your kids to. I'm not saying sports is wrong. 
but it could be an indicator of how little of importance or how little the danger is, you think, to drifting away. Evidence number two, the amount of time letting our kids be educated by pagans and not by God could be the television, could be our schools. Or how about the amount of time given to fitness over knowing God? Could be exercise, diet, oils. Again, not that any of these things are wrong. We should take care of our bodies. But is it revealing to me that I, or to others, that I don't see the danger in my spiritual drift like I see the danger in getting fat? So I exercise. So I diet. They're both important. Or how about the amount of time given to friends and building relationships with friends who don't actually love God and then wonder why we end up in the same boat? Or how about the amount of money we send to those who hate God so they can entertain us to hate God? Or the amount of time we spend fixated on and complaining, especially on stupid things. Again, none of these things are necessarily bad in and of themselves. Time given to fitness, educating our kids, those are not bad things. But the question is, do we spend so much time there in such a way that we don't recognize, or that it's revealing that I don't recognize the danger of drifting spiritually? Let me be clear, these things reveal a neglect, oftentimes for many of us, of paying attention to what we have heard. The exhortation here in Hebrews, other things becoming more important. So we need to realize that this happens naturally. This is the natural proclivity. The decay of our spiritual condition is the natural proclivity given the corrupt nature of the world and our own sinful hearts. We naturally become dull and then deadened spiritually, steadily believing the lies around us. One commentator said this, Without giving, without giving heed to the spiritual resources God provides, your heart will revert to greed, pride, avarice, sensuality, and malice, all those characteristics that define our natural state in sin and lead to destruction. Without giving heed. Listen, this is the easy road. It happens easily. Just get consumed. Get consumed by your work, by your marriage peacefulness, by your kids' happiness. Get consumed by the media. Get consumed by pagans and their stupidity. A spiritual drift will happen. There's no need to try, no need to plan for it, no need to reflect, no need to exert energy, no need to go against the flow. Just let it go. It will happen as naturally as weeds grow in a garden, 
or as natural as states are in our country at killing babies. It will happen. Let me paraphrase. Simply by not paying attention, let yourself become preoccupied with the sights and sounds of this world, and you will be swept away forever. It happens easily. It happens naturally. And it happens oftentimes without being noticed by you in particular. It happens without being noticed. The changes as you drift away are largely imperceptible to you and sometimes to your friends that are closest to you. Like a slow drift or like the ocean tide slowly moving in and slowly moving out. So how might we fight against it going unnoticed? Let me give you a few just practical helps here. So we can hopefully fight against it going unnoticed. Look for these signs in your thoughts and or your emotions. A subtle thinking of, I got this. I can do it without God. Like, I can do this and there's an absence of God in the equation. Or a subtle lack, here's another, a, a subtle lack of God's words crossing your mind without external provocation. What, what I mean by that is a lack of God's words naturally coming to your mind without someone having to prod it from the outside. Or a subtle discontentment with God's plan in your life. A subtle discontentment. I would say also a subtle discontentment, especially with your church. That's, listen, if, if your church is going to be one of the places that's going to provoke you from the outside to not drift away, where do you think Satan will attack first? He'll get rid of the people and their influence in your life, even in this moment, that might be the only influence to keep you from drifting away. So if Satan can cut that off, he'll do it. If your flesh can cut that off, it'll do it. Or a subtle laziness in hearing God's words and obeying them. A subtle discontentment with knowing your Bible. A subtle lack of commitment to praying for strength and power. Again, signs that you could be drifting. Let me give you some of the signs that are usually external, that are coming from an internal that your pastors tend to recognize first. Sign number one, a poor commitment to the church. A poor contentment, a commitment to the church. That, again, that's just an outward fruit of something going on internally. But that's usually a sign that's noticed that someone's starting to drift away. Sign number two, complaining about stupid things. Like when, you, when your heart and mind's getting wrapped up in stupid, frivolous things, of course, the, in those moments you don't think they're stupid and frivolous, but that's part of the problem. When your mind is getting wrapped up, then you have let go of the greater things. 
Namely, what you have heard that Hebrews is telling you not to drift away from. Sign number four, pulling away from the community, pulling away from serving. Sign number four, I think that was sign number three, now it's sign number four. A lack of commitment to intimate discipleship. A lack of commitment to to seeking to be discipled. Usually this person blames it on others. Listen, nine times out of ten, just an observation, spiritual drift goes hand in hand with church commitment drift. And if you think you can be the exception, then good luck. I'm not trying to be mean. I'm trying to help your, you recognize when there is spiritual drift happening so that it doesn't go unnoticed. Because it won't get any better if you just let it alone. Here's what's at stake. Apostasy. Apostasy. Leaving the faith. That's what's at stake. That's what's the the danger here. Hebrews, in large part, is about apostasy. Now, before you jump, hang on a second. I thought we believed in eternal security or once saved, always saved. Yes, that's true. Hebrews also confronts us, though, with the reality of apostasy. Now, I'm not going to dive into a theology of apostasy in that right now. We'll get to that. There's other passages in Hebrews that deal with it more directly. But how do you know if you really are saved? The ones who really are saved are the ones who persevere in that faith till the end. They will persevere in that faith till the end. That's an unquestionable reality. It's not just those who profess faith. Remember, there are people who profess faith who are not actually true believers. Judas is a great example of that. But those who persevere to the end. One commentator said this, we are secure through faith in Jesus Christ. So that meaning like we are eternally secure. That faith cannot be taken away. It cannot be lost. He says, but like a good tree, true faith is revealed by its fruit. Therefore, Peter tells us to be all the more diligent to make your calling and election sure. That's 2 Peter 1.10. Or to examine yourselves, Paul adds, to see whether you are in the faith. 2 Corinthians 13 verse 5. We must therefore persevere and use the resources God gives us to bear fruit and thus not to drift away. That's what's at stake that drifting away. Listen, the passage doesn't stop here. The passage keeps pressing in on this danger. So I'm going to keep making you a little bit more uncomfortable here, hopefully. Hebrews is telling us we will not escape judgment if we turn to those other things for justification. So if we drift away, we will not escape judgment. Now, listen to the language here In Hebrews chapter 2, verse 2. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, 
How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? Now, again, if, if, if we know what's happened thus far in Hebrews, this idea, this phrase of angels, this message declared by angels proved to be reliable, he's juxtaposing. He's, again, we're comparing two different things, this old covenant and this new covenant. So that's the old covenant. Is this angels proved to be this message declared by angels? That's what he's talking about. Versus this new covenant through Christ, and what he's saying is, if you neglect this idea, neglect such a great salvation. What's that mean? It means to make light of. If you make light of, if you don't hold it as valuable as it deserves, and he says we must hold fast because, and here catch this. We must hold fast to this great salvation through Jesus. Because if we don't, here's the reality. There was accountability to those in the old covenant. Meaning all of their sins, there was just retribution. What that means is that they had to pay the price for that. They were held accountable to it. And here's this point. If that's the reality for them, how much more will the, be, will the accountability be for those of us with the new? We see this with Israel, and the point is that the consequence is not less for us. I think we have this mindset that God was, uh, was terribly judgy in the Old Testament, but now he's kind and won't really hold me accountable for any mistakes because he's now this new gracious God. And, and, and I've got Jesus. I can check that box. This is the writer's whole point here. If God held them accountable to his previous word, now that he has spoken through his ultimate word, Jesus, the accountability goes up. That's why he says such a great salvation means that they're faced with greater responsibility and greater peril. Another point of here is that there's no escape. There was no escape for them. There's no escape for us. Someone said this, one after another, Jesus presents Old Testament laws in terms of their inner higher and spiritual demands. What he means is that's the Sermon on the Mount. You've heard it said in the law, but I tell you this. So he's not erasing the law, but he's talking about these inner, higher, and spiritual demands. He, the, the quote goes on. So did Jesus lower the demands of the law? According to him, I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. So Jesus shows you what they look like ultimately the fullness of their expression and their obedience to those laws. So when Jesus comes, a higher expectation, he shows us the higher expectation of the law. You understand, like the command to love is way harder than the outward demands of the law, like don't murder. You understand that? Like it's pretty easy for most of us to walk around and not murder anybody, right? Do you agree with that? I mean, if you need to confess something... You know, we can talk later, okay? <clears throat> it's a lot harder to love people. A.W. Pink said this, 
This is emphasized by a solemn warning, namely, despisers of God were summarily dealt with under the law. Therefore, those who shut their ears to the gospel, to the new, which is so much more excellent, are without doubt treasuring up unto themselves wrath against the day of wrath. Now back to the context. You and I can turn nowhere else for our justification. Jesus is sufficient, and he is better than any other option that we might turn to, or so-called option. Realize that when we turn to something else for our justification, it is the same as saying that Jesus and his truth is insufficient. You understand the blasphemy there? And the reality is this, and we cannot lighten the temperature of this, but turning to these other things is a damnable offense. That's where this book in Hebrews has been building to, that to turn to something else other than Jesus is a damnable offense. It's worthy of nothing but hell. And what the author is telling us in this particular verse is that the danger for you and I is when truth begins to go out of style. When we begin to drift away slowly but surely. There's a danger, but there's also a protection. What is our only option? Spiritual protection. Perseverance is like work, always necessary, but deeply rewarding. Always necessary, deeply rewarding. Look at verse 1 again. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard. Pink says this, because he is God's son, therefore give heed Because he is the heir of all things, therefore give heed. Because he made the worlds, therefore give heed. And so on. Pay attention. He goes on. Give the more earnest heed is something more than a piece of good advice. Catch this, church. He's not just giving you a little bit of wisdom. What he's given us is a divine precept. God has given us a command to keep his precepts diligently. This is a a command for us, not a suggestion. Pay much closer attention. So we must pay attention. We must pay close attention. We must pay much closer attention. We must actively listen, actively know, actively remember. We should hold firmly to a particular belief. That's the idea here. Pay attention. It requires constant diligence. Again, what do you give diligence to? There's lots of things you give diligence to. It might be just sitting on the couch and watching TV. But what do you give diligence to? What do you diligently go after? Diligently go after that promotion? You diligently go after that... Uh, 
uh, health concern? You deal, like, what are you diligently going after? I'm not saying you shouldn't diligently go after those things. But at the top of the list has got to be diligence of paying attention to what you have heard. Diligence is the, listen, the opposite of making light of is making much of. As a, as a pastoral observation, the people I see growing the most around me are those in their Bible the most and reading good, biblically informed books about the Bible and life and then talking about those things with other believers doing the same. Back to Pink. I'm going to quote him a good bit. He says, To give heed is to apply the mind to a particular subject, to attend to it, to consider it. It is here opposed to neglecting the great salvation. No person can read the Scriptures without observing the stress that is laid on consideration and the criminality and hazards which are represented as connected with inconsideration. Listen, it doesn't matter. Listen to me, church. It does not matter if you are thriving in God, with God right now, or if you are struggling with God right now, or you've been a Christian for 50 years, or you've been a Christian for 50 minutes. You must exercise constant diligence in knowing and holding on to the truth. You must hold the wheel of the ship in line. Real practically, real practically, every day, every moment, when any, in, any idea enters your head, you should interrogate that idea. You know what it means to interrogate? Just to question the tar out of it. Question it. Is this true? Any emotion enters your your heart and your mind, interrogate it. Is it true? You and I have the God-given ability to do that. When it comes into your head, when that thought first enters, is it true? Is it right? If it's not, modify it so that it is true and then believe the right thing or reject it as false and replace it with the right thing. Here's, the, here's what typically happens for us, is an idea enters our mind, and then however we feel about that idea, that's what rules, and then our reasoning ability goes to work to support that feeling about that idea. Does that make sense? Follow me? Yes, yes? That's, that's usually what happens. You've got to stop it right there. The idea enters. Take that thought captive and make it obedient to Christ right then. Listen, you should be doing this hundreds of times a day. Take heed. Pay careful attention to what you have heard. C.S. Lewis says this, No belief will automatically remain alive in your mind. It must be fed. Someone else said this, truth must be kept before the mind in order to its producing an appropriate effect. It's hard work. 
It's a fight. It's a race. I mean, Paul talks about the Christian life in these terms. Comfort American Christianity. At least it was comfortable. It's getting less comfortable each day. Made it, uh, has created cultures and generations of Christians that think that the idea of working hard at maintaining faith is uh, either not a reality or it's something even evil. It's not, uh, the scriptures talk about it being a race, a fight. Now listen, there's no place for our works to earn our salvation. We do not even make faith happen. That's a gift of God. But as we work out that faith, as we seek to protect that faith, it's hard work, and that's okay. It's, that's not evil. I mean, it's evil in the sense that we have to do that, like because of the brokenness of our flesh and the world around us. But God has designed it that, that it's, it's part of the journey to work hard for faith, to protect it so we don't drift away. That's natural. This side of eternity until we see his face and then faith will be no more because it will give way to sight, right? It's hard work. Someone said this, the duty here intended is a serious, firm, and fixed settling of the mind upon that which we hear, a bowing and bending of the will to yield unto it, an applying of the heart to it, a placing of the affections upon it, and bringing the whole man into conformity thereunto. Thus, it comprises knowledge of the word, faith therein, obedience thereto, and all other due respects that may in any way concern it. That's a task. Let me rephrase those tasks. A fixed settling of the mind upon it. What is true? What is right? A bowing and bending the will to yield to it. Applying your heart to it. Placing your affections upon it. This is something I should love. And I should abhor this. And bringing the whole person into conformity unto it. Why? Because the truth hasn't gone out of style. Satan's lies should be going out of style in your life. They should be increasingly going out of style in your life. But it's not just hard work. It's also deeply rewarding. He says, so great a salvation. How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? Back to Pink. He's just fantastic on this, on this point. On this idea of this, how great, how, how deeply, immeasurably rewarding is this salvation if we would not drift from it. He says this. The absence of any co-relative, meaning anything related to this greatest salvation, so any co-relative to that, 
And absence, the absence of any co-relative implies it to be so wondrous that its greatness cannot be expressed. Not merely a great salvation, nor even the great salvation, but so great salvation. An expression peculiarly fitted to express his high estimate of its importance. What are the evils from which it saves us? Right? He's gonna, what are the evils from which this salvation saves us? The displeasure of God with all its fearful consequences in time and eternity, and who knows the power of his anger. We must measure the extent of infinite power. We must fathom the depths of infinite wisdom before we can resolve the fearful question. We can only say, according to thy fear, so is thy wrath. The most frightful conception comes infinitely short of the more dreadful reality. That's what we were saved from. He says, a depravity of nature ever increasing and miseries varied according to our varied capacities of, su- of suffering, limited in intensity only by our powers of endurance, which an almighty enemy can enlarge indefinitely and protracted throughout the whole eternity of our being. These are the evils from which this salvation delivers. What's he saying? He's saying the infinite wrath of God upon us, the salvation can save us from that. And then he says, and what are the blessings to which it raises? Listen, a full, free, and everlasting remission of our sins. The enjoyment of the paternal favor of the infinitely powerful and wise and benevolent Jehovah. The transformation of our moral nature, a tranquil conscience, a good hope down here, and in due time, perfect purity and perfect happiness forever in the eternal enjoyment of God. That's what we were saved unto. Last bit of his quote. And how were these evils averted from us? How were we saved from this? How were these blessings obtained for us? By none only than the incarnation, obedience, suffering, and death of the only begotten of God as a sin offering in our room. And how are we individually interested in this salvation? Through the operations of the Holy Spirit in which he manifests a power not inferior to that by which the Savior was raised from the dead or the world was created. So meaning the power that raised Jesus from the dead that created the world is the same power that works in God's people to have faith in the Son of Jesus Christ who died the death we deserved and was raised from that death. And he says, surely such a deliverance will merit the appellation, uh, so great salvation. He's saying that, that I just spent all that time describing, that's why it's called such a great salvation. And as he's saying, he's saying, don't drift from that. That's what you stand to lose. Don't drift. Instead, hold fast. How do we do so? 
Holding fast to God's word sanctifies and preserves our faith. Faith is a gift of God. He gives and grants to whom he pleases. And the measure of faith which we have is a gift of God as well. But that comes as God works in us and abiding in the truth of his word. See, truth really does matter. John 8, let me read these words to you from Jesus, verse 31 through 38. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered him, We are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Jesus answered them. Before I move on, they don't realize their slavery. They don't realize that they've drifted. We're good. I mean, how many of us are sitting here right now even convinced, oh, I'm good. I haven't drifted away. Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you are offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. I speak of what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have heard from your father, who's the devil. So Jesus is pointing out that you can think that you're free when indeed you're a slave to something other than the truth. But it's the truth of him and the truth from him that sets us free. Now, I know we sound like a broken record around here, but you must organize your thoughts around the Bible's message every day of your life. That's what it means to abide. Is this true? Is this not true? How does the Bible inform this? How should I think about this? Is there any area of my life that's not informed the Bible that I'm not aware of that needs to be informed by the Bible? Am I applying the Scriptures with depth to my life? Am I taking it out of the clouds? Am I taking my emotions back? Am I testing my my ideas back to the Scriptures? Listen, you will only be set free from whatever tyranny you are under by the truth of Christ. The tyranny of your own emotions, the tyranny of someone else's emotions, the tyranny of the stupid decisions that you're about to make or that you have made. The list goes on. It is the word of Christ that truly sets you free, nothing else. It is the truth that perseveres our faith or preserves our faith. Why? Because faith must be fed. Faith must be fed. The truth of God makes the soul fat. It nourishes the soul. It makes it full and resilient and prosperous. Why? Because the truth and the soul were meant to commune together perfectly. For all of eternity. That's how Adam and Eve were created. Was for their souls to enjoy the truth from God for all of eternity. 
Truth nourishes the soul. Why? Because truth is ultimately God. Like it's from God. The alternative is slavery to falsehood. And some of us don't realize that we're living on someone else's plantation. Let me ask this question. What do you really want? And let me frame it like this. What do you really want? We say we want the Lord and we want His power and we want the ability to change our lives. We want the assurance of eternal life and justification. We say we want those things. But what is done often is we look to everything else to change our lives and to give us this assurance. We look everywhere else to keeping our own rules, mastering creation, keeping our emotions happy, making our spouses happy. This only produces a powerful, a powerless life. If you pursue these things, they only produce a powerless life with the assurance of hell. So listen, don't tell me, don't tell others, and stop telling yourself that you want power from God to live a life of blessing and assurance of eternal life. If you're going to walk out of this place today and give a head nod to the scriptures between now and next Sunday. If you're just going to allow your emotions to rule or the false ideas of this world and your flesh, stop fooling yourself. Stop dancing on the cliff's edge. Spouses, stop fooling yourself when it comes to your spouse. If they're not in the word and following it, don't follow them. The best thing you can do, even in this moment, is be honest with yourself. We begin with humility. Just say, I simply don't want my life to change or to enjoy the assurance of eternal life. I'd rather find my justification by the work of my own hands. And then repent. And then repent. Ask God to forgive you for that arrogance. And then turn your faith to Jesus. There is forgiveness for you. There is forgiveness for you and for me. Strength from God to change our lives only comes by the Spirit through diligent study and understanding and applying the Word of God. Because truth really does matter. Because truth should never go out of style, especially in a believer's life. So which do you really want? My last couple thoughts. He talks about these signs and miracles that God gives during this time to kind of put a stamp of validity and credibility on the message. You know, in our day, 
You want to know what attests to the validity of the power of the Word of God today? A life set free by the gospel. Why? Because believing the truth instead of lies. A life with rightly ordered affections that gives, a, that gives validity, attests to the validity of the Scriptures. And a life with rightly ordered actions. Right? A life that's been set free by the gospel. That attests to the validity and the credibility of the word of God. And listen, many of you, I see this in your life and your elders see this in your life. Where your life is being changed and set free by the gospel. And it gives, even to my own soul, that has a tendency to wander into unbelief. I look at your life and I go, there's credibility to what God has said. I can see it. And what's it do? It strengthens my faith. It helps me persevere. It helps me take the next steps. It helps me to say no to lies. It helps me to not listen to my emotions. It helps me to rightly order those things and rightly order my steps and my affections. Why? Because the truth is what sets us free. So as I see the truth setting you free, it, the truth becomes a more greater reality and trusted in my own soul, and it sets me free too. Let me end with this. Four reasons why you should pay great attention to what we have heard. Four reasons why we should pay great attention to what we have heard. But here's what I want you to do. I don't want you to write. <laughs> I want you to look up. If you want to write these down, I'll leave my notes up here and you can come copy them down, okay? Let me give you these four. So pay attention without writing. First, so why should we pay attention? Number one, because of, uh, and I'm quoting Pink here, four, four reasons. Because of the glory and majesty of the one by whom he has communicated his mind and will, the Son, Jesus Christ. Second reason, because the message of Christianity is final. Number three, because of the infinite preciousness of the gospel. And number four, because of the hopeless perdition and terrible tortures awaiting those who reject or let slip the testimony of God's wondrous grace. Amen? The truth has gone out of style in our day. Let's not drift from the truth. Let's pray. Most gracious, merciful Father, let us see the hopelessness, the terrible tortures that await those who reject or those who let slip the testimony of God's wondrous grace, of your wondrous grace. Let us see the infinite preciousness of the gospel. Let us see that the message of Christianity is final. And let us see the glory and majesty of your Son who has communicated to us your mind and your heart and your will. Father, we, we confess that even our ability to pay attention, to, to keep a hold, to take heed, 
that our ability to do so is utterly dependent on your power and your grace. And Father, you've given us a good majority of that, a good, a good amount of that grace in your word. That if we would read it and pay attention to it, that we would take our mind and fix it upon it. That we would tell our hearts to get in line with what it should love and what it should hate. That we would be diligent in it so that we would not slip away. And Father, I, I, I beg you to, that for those who are even right now in the, in the midst of my words right now, that if they're beginning to drift, that you would convict their hearts right now. And if they're not convicted now, that when a brother or sister calls them back, that they would have ears to hear. Father, for their good and ultimately for your glory. And ask all these things in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.